Uh, please turn with me to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, and beginning to read at verse 19. Acts 11 and verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cytene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of of Barnabas and Saul. This is the word of the Lord. In a moment I'm going to pray, but first to, uh, I don't need to introduce Lee Gatiss, uh, but uh, my wife said of Lee uh, the other day when we were talking, she said it's a rare combination to find a fine scholar, a great preacher and a cheeky, cheerful, chappy to boot, all wrapped up together. And that seemed to me to perfectly describe Lee, uh, who's been the driving force of a renewed church society, and we're so thankful to God for Lee's gifts, for his love for the gospel and the word of God, and for his drive in furthering the gospel cause among us. So thank you, Lee. Uh, let me just pray for you, and then I would ask you when I finish prayer, as he comes up, give him a good round of applause and a welcome. But first, let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way in Acts we see the gospel speed on and triumph across Europe, even in difficult circumstances. And we pray that you will help us to learn all that we need to learn from the Holy Scriptures and from the lessons of history that we may be faithful witnesses to your saving word in our day and generation. Bless Lee, help him to help us in our thinking, and we pray that what we learn today we may put into action in our lives and in our church life. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Give Lee a warm welcome.
No, keep going while I'm doing the technology, that's fine. Thank you. Do keep that passage open from uh, Acts chapter 11, if, uh, if you have that open. Uh, it's a great privilege to be here to, to be speaking to you all today. Thank you for coming. Uh, thank you for all the support and encouragement that you have been over the last year for the ministry and the work of Church Society. Um, I speak for all the staff, um, say thank you for your support for us in particular, uh, for Roz, for Sophie and for David. So thank you. In this session, I've been asked to talk a little bit about how the early church flourished and grew in the midst of persecution and heresy. The church grew from a tiny seed of just a handful of believers in that upper room in Jerusalem to conquer the Roman Empire in two and a half centuries and many other parts of the world as well. And this, despite having no armies at its command, in a context where Christians were a despised and marginalised minority who appeared extreme to those around them. And where the mainstream Church of Jesus Christ was assailed by satanic attempts to subvert the truth of the gospel with various seemingly attractive false teachings. So the resonance for us is obvious, is it not? We too live in a time where the majority culture around us is hostile to the gospel in so many ways. We may not ourselves face the prospect of a literal stake or going to the lions for what we believe, but there is ignorance and incomprehension, scorn and derision. And there are often difficult choices to be made between the dictates of Christian conscience and the demands of a modern career or profession in the world. Not only that, but within the church itself, there is often outright hostility to the truth of the Bible in some places and open opposition to historic orthodoxy, both doctrinal and moral. Those were the things also faced by the early church in the first 300 years of our era until the days of Emperor Constantine the Great. And yet, the church at the beginning of the 4th century was on the cusp of its most spectacular success. By the end of the century, it would be the official religion of the whole Roman Empire. Now, I'm not claiming that that is what we have to look forward to in the century before us. I have no prophetic insight into that. I do not claim to have any extraordinary spiritual perception that enables me to predict the future with great confidence or give infallible advice on how we should act today. What I do have is the Bible and some lessons that we might draw from the history of those early days. We can quickly see a few key points from Luke's account in Acts of the growth of the church in those early days from the reading. First, it appears that persecution helps the church to grow. We do not have to like that. It is never pleasant, but it can still achieve the purposes of God. All the persecutions in Acts, for example, 
always seem to result in Christians being scattered further and further away from ground zero in Jerusalem. And Jesus' words are fulfilled. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It may have been in chains, but Paul reached Rome. It may have been in a position of great weakness, but he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ before Caesar, the most powerful man in the world. Second, as it goes, the gospel breaks boundaries. It went first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles, as we see in this passage. And not only that, it unites Jews and Gentiles together along the way, overriding every other marker of human identity and commanding the loyalty of all converts. Thirdly, the gospel triumphs because the Lord's hand was with them. That's what it says. The flourishing of the good news does not depend merely on our hard work, our political acumen, the grace and favour of the world, the press and the establishment. No, what does it say? It says Barnabas saw what the grace of God had done. Fourthly, the word does the work. The people involved here are told to spread the word. They tell the good news. They teach the people. That is how the church grows, as the word of God is preached and taught. The Bible is sufficient. No extra special techniques are required to encourage people in the face of heresy and persecution, to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. This is what we need. Fifth, key individuals can be useful and play a part. Barnabas and Saul were mighty instruments in God's hands to bring many to faith and to strengthen them in it in those early days. But so were the unnamed men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who saw a great number of people turn to the Lord. In either case, the glory and the credit were Christ's alone. And finally, we can see in this passage that early Christians applied their faith and helped each other out. When famine came, the predominantly Gentile church in Antioch, that we're talking about in this Acts passage, the Gentile church in Antioch, sent vital relief to the Jewish church in Jerusalem. They loved one another and showed their unity in Christ with acts of love and deeds of faith. And this is how the church grew and multiplied in the first few decades. And indeed, this is how it continued to multiply and spread in the next couple of centuries Historians tell us that by the time of Constantine, the church had reached about 10% of the population, and there were about 30 million Christians in the Roman Empire by the middle of the 4th century. That is over 50% of the population, a staggering number, which is within the range of many modern historians' estimates as well. Now, how has... This amazing growth 
from nothing to official majority religion in the empire being explained. Well, obviously, we would say that Christianity spread because it was the true faith. We can say that the triumph of the gospel was prophesied and commended, commanded by Jesus. And so it was bound to come to pass. God did it. Jesus is king and he subdues the earth. Now, those are good and right and true things to say. But it didn't have to happen this way. The triumph of the church in the first three centuries was not inevitable. Apart from the obvious theological reasons we may adduce for the success of the true gospel, how else have historians and sociologists explained the remarkable success of the church up to Constantine? Well, sociologists such as Rodney Stark and historians such as very recently Bart Ehrman have written about this. And I think we can boil down what they say about the rise of Christianity into seven points. The church was evangelistic, exclusive, all-encompassing, that is, it made demands on your entire life, eternity-focused. The endurance of the martyrs played a major role, as did the embrace of authentic community. Finally, the early church was an excluding church. It dealt effectively with major heretical threats to its integrity and cohesion and did not practice what is nowadays called good disagreement, <laughs> which is really the relativizing of truth and the exaltation of unity at any cost. Let's look at these seven points um, a little bit further. Firstly, the church was evangelistic, of course. One of the interesting things um, about Rodney Stark's calculations about the growth of the church, which I just showed you, and Bart Ehrman's more recent tweaking of those, is that we come out with a figure of around 40% growth in the church per decade on average, up to the end of the 4th century. Because the early church was an evangelistic church, its doctrine of Christ's second coming to judge the living and the dead encouraged keen evangelism. The zeal of those early Christians was such that they were enthusiastic about sharing their faith. That is why they grew. And you know, these numbers are actually not that ridiculous or miraculous as such when we consider that they basically amount to every church of around 100 people making three or four converts a year. That doesn't actually sound impossible now, does it? Stark says, the rise of Christianity required no miraculous rates of conversion. The Mormons have achieved the same sort of growth curve without the need for truth or miraculous mass conversions. This evangelism, of course, was also aided by the Pax Romana, the ability to travel along Roman roads guaranteed by Roman soldiers anywhere in the vast Roman Empire. It was also aided by the fact that there was, of course, a common language throughout much of the empire. The Greek spread by Alexander the Great's short-lived, though vast, empire, which had preceded Rome. It was also aided by the fact that there were Jews everywhere, 
The Jews had spread all over the empire and provided a convenient first base for many evangelistic efforts. As Paul said, first to the Jew, then to the Gentiles. And there were millions of Jews all over the empire. But this consistent evangelistic effort was not sustained by an army of wandering evangelists, missionaries, though there were the odd itinerant preacher uh, here and there. It wasn't all done by big celebrities hoping, uh, holding open-air rallies and appearing on TV and that sort of thing. It mostly happened through ordinary means, gossiping the gospel to neighbours and friends, bringing up children to know and love the Lord. So lesson number one from the early church is that we must retain this evangelistic edge in our own day if we are to flourish in the midst of a culture that knows nothing of our faith in Christ and him crucified. We have far better means of travel and communication these days, even better than the Romans, and there are a million ways to get the message out. Christianity first spread through natural social networks and lines of communication. And so Christians today must also use all the means of publishing, broadcasting and social networking to engage the world around us with the good news of our Saviour Jesus Christ. But above all, each of us has at our disposal what Stark calls the best of all marketplace techniques, person-to-person influence. We must make the most of our natural relationships with those who don't know Jesus. Secondly, though, the church was not just evangelistic in the early days, it was also exclusive. Edward Gibbon says in The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire that one of the prime reasons for the rapid growth of the church was the inflexible and intolerant zeal of the Christians. They were convinced that they were right, and other gods and other religions were not. Unlike devotees of the pagan gods, Christians were expected to become devoted to one God alone and to abstain from all other cultic practices. This, according to Bart Ehrman, is one of the main reasons that Christianity took over the Roman Empire. One might think, he says, that this exclusionary insistence would be off-putting and offensive in a world filled with gods, dooming the Christian mission to failure. But on the contrary, it had just the opposite effect. It was this claim that led to the triumph of Christianity. There was unparalleled novelty in this approach, which shocked the pagan world of Greece and Rome. Every convert to Christianity was a loss to the pagan world. So the old gods were destroyed as Christianity advanced, which was not true when people simply changed their allegiance from one pagan god to another in a pluralistic culture which allowed a a huge amount of diversity. Think about it. If Christianity had been evangelistic but not exclusive, 
It may have made some converts, but it would have been subsumed along with all the other pluralistic practices around them, and paganism would not have been affected. Christianity could just have been added to the pantheon of gods that you were allowed to worship. It was the very exclusivity of salvation in Christ alone that helped to preserve and grow the church. So a pluralistic culture that disliked exclusive truth claims was not necessarily detrimental to the gospel. And neither is our pluralistic culture an excuse for us to keep quiet and not keep speaking the truth. Preaching only one way of salvation attracts followers and depletes the ranks of paganism as it does so. That is the precise culture in which Christianity first grew. Related to this, a third reason for the success of Christianity is that it's an all-encompassing religion that made demands on one's entire life. It was not simply about adding a god to your personal pantheon or changing the gods that you burned incense to. It was about changing your whole life. That was not how ancient religions tended to work. Christianity was totalizing in a way that worshipping Artemis or Zeus was not. That also meant that Christianity created a loyalty in its adherents, which extended over their whole lives. It created a new identity in believers. Followers of Apollos or Venus did not make their choice of deity into their most important characteristic. One did not you might say, come out as a Venusian or a worshipper of Mars. You just added that to your existing life without importing much in the way of ethical or doctrinal demands. It did not create a common bond between Mars believers, so to speak. But believing in Christ did. And believing in Christ came with an ethical claim over every second of your day and night, and a set of orthodox doctrinal <coughs> beliefs. And of course we see today, don't we, how attractive this kind of identity making is in our own society. Once people define themselves by their sexuality or some other marker of difference, it is very difficult to shake their loyalty to that thing, which becomes a cause, a basic marker of who they are in their own minds. We have a number today of competing, totalizing narratives, which people in our world are asked to buy into. Many of them are aggressively evangelistic and jealously exclusive. And that may make our evangelism today much more of an existential challenge in some ways. But the lesson that we learn from the early church is that we don't make progress by abandoning the truth and the exclusivity and all-encompassing nature of the gospel. Next, the early church was also eternity-focused. Edward Gibbon, again, claims that the doctrine of immortality was one of the main causes of the rapid growth 
of Christian of the Christian church. Pagans were desperate, he said, to learn about the possibility of an afterlife. Bart Ehrman also makes this point in his book, The Triumph of Christianity, that Christian eschatology was one of the distinctive things about those who followed Jesus compared to the pagan environment of the first century. Christians had a clear day, a clear view of the judgment day that was to come. They believed in the torments of hell for those who do not believe and the joys of a heavenly utopia for those who stand firm in their faith in Christ. Ehrman says, most pagans, however, appear not to have subscribed to the idea of any afterlife whatsoever. Now, surprisingly, this seemingly basic Christian doctrine is another thing that is under attack these days from the trendy liberal end of Protestantism. So Steve Chalk recently tweeted that Christianity is supposed to be not so much about life after death as life before it. Quality of life right here, right now, of which poverty and injustice rob so many. To which I reply, and which I literally (coughs) did reply on Twitter, I hate poverty and war and injustice, but the hope of a far better life beyond death with the risen Lord Jesus Christ has always been absolutely central to the Christian message. The gospel is not mostly about improving quality of life in this fallen world, as important as that may be. Now, this was something that was particularly important to those who suffered for their faith in the opening centuries of our era. And that's the next point, that the endurance of the martyrs was also something which attracted the attention and admiration of many pagans. After all, Bart Ehrman asks, rather sarcastically, how many martyrs for Zeus do we hear about? Nowadays, we find it difficult to endure negative comments on Twitter. But they endured far worse, and it inspired and attracted people to our crucified God. Uh, Justin Martyr, an early Christian apologist, was of course a martyr himself, hence the name. But he actually became a Christian in the first place because he said Christians' martyrdom showed him that they deserved to be believed. Now, what about our behaviour? Does our behaviour in the midst of suffering and persecution do that? Or does it just put people off? As one second-century Christian said, the blood of the martyrs is seed. But today, the way that Christians often react under pressure from the world contains nothing of that vital sap which can turn hardened opposition into diehard believers. But somehow, the way that Christians endured under ultimate persecution persuaded people to give the gospel a hearing. Some thought that it was foolish, sheer stubbornness on behalf of the Christians, but others had their heads turned Now, that was the case even though the absolute number of people who died for their faith was actually very small. 
And the vast number of pagans never saw a real martyrdom. The stories were enough. Rodney Stark says, even the most brutal persecutions of Christians were haphazard and limited. The state ignored thousands of persons who openly professed the new religion. We were pretty free to get on with things despite official disrepute for most of the time. But the fact that Christians endured under torture or were willing to die for their faith in Christ made Christianity a credible religion and placed a high potential value on it in people's eyes. One other thing that many people would have experienced, however, is the embrace of authentic community, the community of the Christian church. That kind of authenticity is vital for local churches, even more than the big celebrity Christian speakers and mass rallies and TV appearances on news nights. That wasn't how the church grew back then in the early days of the church, by making its case on Radio 4. Rodney Stark goes even further. He claims that the superior care experienced by Christians in the community of the church was one of the most significant factors in the growth of the church. So much so that when major epidemics killed off thousands of people in the ancient world, that helped the church to become dominant because Christians offered each other superior nursing care. Paganism had a relative inability to confront such crises socially or spiritually. Now, Rodney Stark, who's a sociologist, also sees superior fertility because of the positive Christian treatment of women and children as statistically significant for the growth of the church over time. And he says that the new culture created by church communities was capable of making life in Greco-Roman cities more tolerable and therefore enabled growth in those environments. He concludes that paganism failed to develop the kind of voluntary system of good works that Christians had been constructing for more than three centuries. Moreover, paganism lacked the religious ideas which would have made such organised efforts plausible. No welfare state at all under paganism. You need Christianity to give that intellectual foundation. Pagan cults, in fact, were not able to get people to do anything much. Uh, Stark says the inability of non-exclusive faiths to generate belonging was a key thing. Indeed, it is Christian doctrine which creates Christian community that is such a powerful factor in our early success. Central doctrines of Christianity promoted and sustained attractive, liberating and effective social relations and organisations. And that was ultimately the ultimate factor in the rise of Christianity, says Stark. The gospel brought a new conception of humanity to a world that was saturated with capricious cruelty and the vicarious love of death. And it is still capable of doing so today. In our world, which is increasingly the same in its brutality and worship of sex and violence as entertainment. 
We may not take our kids to go and see some Christians torn apart by lions or killed by gladiators in the arena on a Saturday night, but what do we let them watch on TV? What do we let them play on their consoles? Now, notice what was not responsible for the rise of Christianity. What was not responsible. Constantine's conversion was not the cause of the growth of the church. It was, if anything, a response to the growth of the church. And after a while, the rate of growth slowed once Christianity became the official religion of the empire and there weren't so many pagans around to convert. But it wasn't achieved through political means, by securing the reins of power and the support of the state. Far from it. The church thrived without any of that before Constantine. As we've also seen, of course, in the last century in China. State support, freedom of speech and freedom of religion may be great gifts and privileges, but they are by no means prerequisites for the growth of the church. One other other aspect of Christianity uh, which ought to be mentioned is that uh, it was an excluding faith, an excluding faith. That is, the early church had to handle heresy and false teaching. These things are inevitable, of course, because wherever, um, wherever there's something of real value, there will always be a counterfeit and a market for counterfeits. How did the early church handle that heresy? By excluding it. They were keen to create clear boundaries between truth and error. Even in the face of hostility from the world and the surrounding culture, they did not relativise truth for the sake of some kind of unity. And of course we see this in the Bible itself. The Apostle Paul, for example, exhorts the church to drive out the recalcitrantly immoral and avoid charlatans in the church. The Apostle John's letters urge congregations to discern between the spirit of God and the spirit of Antichrist and not to welcome those who bring false teaching. The risen Lord Jesus himself commends churches for not tolerating wicked people who claim to be apostles but are not and he commands them to repent quickly if they harbour those who teach false doctrine or have immoral lifestyles. Now there were various heresies that grew up to afflict the church. Gnosticism, Doceticism, Marcionism, Pelagianism, Arianism, brilliant for Scrabble. (laughs) These all grew up and the church had to decide whether these were issues that it could agree to disagree about or whether they had to divide on these subjects. Now I heard recently of a bishop who said that given a choice between heresy and schism, breaking away from the church, he would choose heresy. When I read that, I had a sharp intake of breath. Given a choice between heresy and schism, he would choose heresy, said this bishop. 
but not so in the early church. In the third century, Cyprian of Carthage advised that once a bishop joins a dodgy sect, that's the official theological definition, a dodgy (laughs) sect, once a bishop joins such a sect, he should be excommunicated and another should be elected to fill his place because he's departed from the faith and from the unity of the church. He says this, What if any harbour in the sea shall begin to be mischievous and dangerous to ships by the breach of its defences? Do not the navigators direct their ships to other neighbouring ports where there is a safe and practical entrance and a secure station? Or if on the road any inn should begin to be beset and occupied by robbers so that whoever should enter would be caught by the attack of those who lie in wait there, Don't the travellers, as soon as its character is discovered, seek other houses of entertainment on the road where they will be safer, where the lodging is trustworthy and the inns are safe for travellers? And this ought now to be the case with us, dearest brother, that we should receive to us with ready and kindly humanity our brethren who, tossed on the rocks of Marcian, that's Marcianus of Arles, a novation heretic, They are seeking secure harbours in the church. So if you see somebody who's seeking a secure harbour because they're being chased out of the church by a heretic, what are we to do? There are, of course, even more clear examples of this sort of thing in the life of the great Athanasius. Many will recall how clear he was in opposing the heresy of Arianism and establishing orthodox Christology. He taught clearly that Christ is of one substance with the Father and not of similar substance as the Arians claimed. And although the Arians claimed that there was a time when Christ was not, Athanasius and others said Christ is the eternal God. Now when the Emperor Constantine heard of that debate between the Arians and Athanasius and others, Um, he, He was worried that it was threatening the unity of the church and therefore of his empire because he was now a member of the church and was concerned about it. So he sat down and wrote a letter to both sides of that debate. He said, You are pertinaciously contending with one another about matters of small or scarcely the least importance. He asked them, Is it right on account of insignificant and vain contentions between you about words, that brethren should be set in opposition against brethren, and that the honourable communion should be distracted by unhallowed dissension, through our striving with one another, respecting things so unimportant and by no means essential. It was, he said, an insignificant subject of controversy. Constantine wanted to unite his empire through his support for the church. But now his church was divided and threatened that very unity. As is often the case with brand new Christians, perhaps, he couldn't understand why it was so important to be precise about doctrine. He preferred some kind of good disagreement on this trivial and secondary matter Christ's divinity there were some of course at that time who agreed we read 
that the church should not engage in subtle, systematic, theological distinctions, but should just get on with faith and good works. And yet, as you know, 300 bishops gathered in a council and met at Nicaea, and they were absolutely clear about the Arian heresy. And they had no qualms at all about anathematizing those who held to it. Interestingly, they did not think that the basic Apostles' Creed, which you kind of had to say to, to be baptized in the early church, they didn't think that that early creed was entirely sufficient for the heresies of a later day. So they composed their own expanded version to directly address the new problems, which eventually developed into the so-called Nicene Creed. A compromise peace for the sake of unity and mission was never going to cut it. Athanasius's approach won the day. He said, we must be clear on truth, even if it excludes. And yet that did not happen easily. He was exiled a number of times and did not always appear to be on the winning side. He could have given up, walked away, done something new. When things were going badly for him, as patriarch of Alexandria, he even ordained Orthodox people irregularly in places where Arianism had the upper hand. For example, we read this in one of the early histories. Immediately on his arrival in Egypt, Athanasius displaced those whom he knew to be attached to Arianism and placed the government of the church and the confession of the Nicene Council in the hands of those of whom he approved and exhorted them to hold to this with earnestness. It was said at that time that when he was traveling through other countries, he effected the same change if he happened to visit churches which were under the Arians. He was certainly accused of having dared to perform the ceremony of ordination in cities where he had no right to do so. Others did the same, appointing people to churches so that they might oppose the official bishops if they were Arian or otherwise unorthodox. And so we see that the early church flourished by keeping its doctrine as pure as possible on primary issues, despite official pressure from on high to compromise and get along for the sake of unity. They were willing in those days to risk personal discomfort and exile and a messy ecclesiastical situation for the sake of the truth about Jesus Christ, which was enshrined and passed on for the spiritual health of future generations in that Nicene Creed. As I bring this to a conclusion then, we could have simply looked at Acts chapter 11 this morning, the passage which uh, Wallace read for us, and drawn out some lessons from there. But what I've tried to do is to see not only what the New Testament itself um, says about the growth of the early Christian church in the middle of the first century, but continue the story into the next few generations as well. Carried along by the Holy Spirit, Luke 
gives us a prophetic insight into the causes and progress of Christianity. Church historians and sociologists cannot do that. But what they can do is help us reflect on the evidence that is left behind and humbly try to come to some tentative conclusions. My conclusion is that the church triumphed in the Roman Empire and became what Larry Hurtado calls the destroyer of the gods in the same ways as Luke observed were happening in first century Antioch. Persecution helps the church to grow. The gospel breaks all boundaries of class, class, ethnicity, and so on. <laughs> the gospel triumphed because the Lord's hand was with them as they preached the unerring word of God and refuted error. Key individuals played a part, but the way the early Christians applied their faith in love and good deeds was critical to its success, as was excluding those who were not preaching the saving truth of the gospel. That is how the church grew and multiplied in the first few decades and centuries. Brothers and sisters, it is probably how the church will survive and grow and flourish in the next few centuries as well, until the Lord of the church himself returns to gather us from east and west and north and south and usher in his new creation. Let's pray, shall we? As we, we pray with Paul in 2 Thessalonians. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage our hearts and strengthen us in every good deed and word. And may the message of the Lord spread rapidly and be honoured, just as it was in the three centuries we've looked at this morning and just as it did with us. And Lord, please deliver us from wicked and evil people, for not everyone has faith, but help us trust in your faithfulness to strengthen and protect us from the evil one as we continue to do the things that you command us in your word. Direct our hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance in the power of your spirit. Amen. Amen.